welcome you. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell, and there's nothing quite like the grief that the people of Haiti have suffered through ever since 1804, when it became the first free black republic in the world, the first independent state in the Caribbean, and the second independent state in the Western Hemisphere after the United States. That grief continues to this very day. Since the 2021 assassination of Haiti's President Jovenel Moise, there has been much speculation about a bigger conspiracy to overthrow his government, a plan that the FBI apparently knew about, according to documents related to the case. There also seems to be a Miami-based security firm involved. The DEA was apparently knowledgeable of the coup as well. Coup plotters have been arrested and they await trial, which will happen sometime next year, three years after the assassination. But why does the U.S. have so much interest in Haiti? Why has it had so much interest in Haiti, an impoverished country that seems in the midst of perpetual violence and climate catastrophe? And what's the likelihood that yet again the U.S. will insist that the only possible response is a military one to protect, secure, and serve the people while stabilizing the nation by adding more force to an already burning powder keg. Returning to This Is Hell today will be Jake Johnson, who recently posted the New York Times opinion piece, The U.S. Still Can Do What's Right for Haiti. Jake is a senior research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., and the author of the forthcoming book, Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. Jake's research at CEPR has focused predominantly on economic policy in Latin America, the IMF, and U.S. foreign policy. He has been the lead author for CEPR's Haiti Relief and Reconstruction Watch blog since February 2010, just weeks after a 7.0 earthquake devastated Haiti. Find his writing and more about CEPR at CEPR.net. Follow CEPR on Twitter at CEPRDC. His articles and op-eds have been published in not only the New York Times, but also The Nation, The Intercept, Le Monde Diplomatique, Boston Review, and Al Jazeera. Follow Jake on Twitter at Jacob Johnston. That's J-A-K-O-B Johnston. Jake has appeared on the show several times, including twice in 2017. He was on that January to talk about his Intercept article, Senator-elect and former paramilitary leader Guy Philippe arrested on drug charges, and returned to talk about his CEPR writing uh, that December in that article that was uh, also posted at The Intercept, I believe, uh, was titled, Top U.S.-backed Honduran Security Minister is Running Drugs According to Court Testimony. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, anything new in your world? Well, that party uh, on Saturday was fun. Yeah, the, 20th, the 27th yeah. anniversary and listener appreciation party. That was, uh, that was a blast. I uh, was talking to, I think, Will at the bar, and uh, someone was all of a sudden says, 
You're Dan Kugler. I could tell by your voice. And uh, it was Neil C. from New York. And I had a pleasure to uh, talk to uh, a lot of out-of-town guests uh, from Milwaukee and uh, Mississippi. And it was just really fun to meet all the guests, uh, not guests, uh, uh, fans. Yeah, it was a lot of listeners showed up. Uh, Neil came out from Brooklyn again. He's over at the uh, Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. And a lot of the people over there listen to the show. So thanks to everybody who traveled great distances to come to our anniversary and listener appreciation party, which just happened last weekend. Thank you so much. And start making plans for next year because I'm sure the party will be bigger and better than ever. What's new by me is, well, what's old by me this time of year, every year, and that is I am working my ass off in order to not work or at least not worry about work for the next two weeks. Uh, This show takes a lot of effort to put together every week and after the break, two-week summer break that we're about to head into, uh, we want to get right back at it as we are scheduled to not take a day off other than Labor Day between when we return on Tuesday, August 15th and our annual winter holiday break, which will happen four months later at the end of the year. That's four straight months of This Is Hell for the first time in two Years following our upcoming two-week break, summer break in early August. And I cannot wait because, and I, I hate to jinx myself, but I'm actually starting to feel healthy again. I think that's what this feeling is, is I'm somewhat unfamiliar with it of late. Following the nightmare I've gone through physically as well as mentally and emotionally over the past year and a half, my hope is that when we do return in mid-August, I will never again speak of my failing mortal coil, or at least not for a very long time because the last 18 months have really, really sucked. Also new by me, minutes before this past weekend's anniversary and listener appreciation party began as I was leaving my home to come over here to host the party The refrigerator in my home died just as I was walking out the door. We finally got someone out yesterday to repair it. And after two days of the fridge not working, destroying all our food inside, we were told that the repair estimate was $1,200. So now that on top of everything else going on in my life, on top of trying to get out of town for vacation, on top of trying to get everything set for the radio show for the next two weeks while I'm out of town, we gotta go get a new fridge. More important than our upcoming schedule and my fridge dying, Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? What do you need a vacation from? What do you need a vacation from? I need a vacation from my dying appliances. (laughs) Uh, The winner of this week's and every week's question from hell Gets a free piece of This Is Hell swag. You can see all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can answer this week's uh, question from hell or contact us for any reason via email at chuck at or on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or on Twitter at thisishellradio or at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thisishell and on our Discord as well. And if you do... We will share your answer or read whatever you wrote to us on air. If you send a guest suggestion and we end up having your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally during the interview with our suggested guest. We got another guest request from listener Mika D. This time Mika writes, Do you only do books from the last year? 
That's all he writes. And then he sends a, li- a link to a Cory Doctorow review in an October 2022 edition of the New York Times with the headline, Why the Communist Manifesto Still Matters in a Specter Haunting the British Fantasy Writer and Political Activist and Past Guest on our show. China Mieville makes the case for why Marx and Engels' uh, famous pamphlet remains vital today. Dr. O writes that Mieville's latest book, A Specter Haunting on the Communist Manifesto, is also a work of nonfiction, but it is not novelistic. Billed as an introduction to the manifesto, though it is substantially longer than the work itself, it is brilliant, even dazzling, dazzling also esoteric, closer in style to Mieville's academic writing than to his published fiction and nonfiction so China was on, this is held back in 2017, to discuss his then-just-published book, October, The Story of the Russian Revolution. That work was a departure for China, as his writing had, in the past, been primarily science fiction. So, Mika, we try to have authors on the show shortly after their books are published. However, many works are ignored by the establishment media, and if that writing is important enough, and China was fantastic on the show back in 27. Uh, 2017. Then as long as it's still fresh, we'll feature it on the show, and we are reaching out to see if we can get China Mieville back on the show to talk about his more recent work. On Discord, listener Hugh posted a wild news story out of Alabama. This is from CapitalBnews.org, a black-led nonprofit local and national news organization reporting for black communities across the country. Keep in mind, this article is from last week, not last century. The headline is, a black man was elected mayor in rural Alabama, but the white town leaders won't let him serve. For three years, Patrick Braxton says he has experienced harassment and intimidation after becoming the first black mayor in New Bern, Alabama. The story starts, there's a power struggle in New Bern, Alabama, and the rural town's first black mayor is at war with the previous administration, who says, uh, who he says locked him out of town hall. After years of racist harassment and intimidation, Patrick Braxton is fed up. In a federal civil civil rights lawsuit, he is accusing town officials of conspiring to deny his civil rights and his position because of his race. Braxton recalls, quote, When I first became mayor, a white woman told me the town was not ready for a black mayor. Keep in mind, the town is 85% black, and 29% of black people here live below the poverty line. Not only has now Mayor Braxton been locked out of the town hall and fought fires alone, but he's been followed by a drone and unable to retrieve the town's mail and financial accounts, he says. Rather than concede, Haywood Woody Stokes III, the former white mayor, along with his council members, reappointed themselves to their positions after ordering a special election that no one knew about. Braxton is suing them, the People's Bank of Greensboro, and the postmaster of the U.S. Post Office. For at least 60 years, there's never been an election in the town. Instead, the mantle has been treated as a hand-me-down by the small percentage of white residents, according to several residents that were interviewed by Capital B. After being the only one to submit qualifying paperwork and statement of economic interest, Braxton became the mayor. After Braxton held his first town meeting in November, Stokes changed the locks to town hall to keep him and his city council from accessing the building. For months, the two went back and forth on changing the locks until Braxton could no longer gain access. At some point, Braxton says he discovered all official town records had been removed or destroyed except for a few boxes containing meeting minutes and other documents. Braxton also was prevented 
from accessing the town's financial records with the People's Bank of Greensboro and the city clerk and obtaining mail from the town's post office. At every turn, he was met with a a familiar answer. You're not the mayor. Separately, he's had drones following him to his home and mother's home and had a white guy almost run him off the road, he says. Braxton asserts he's experienced these levels of harassment and intimidation to keep him from being the mayor, he said. In the midst of the obstacles, Braxton kept pushing. He partnered with Laquina Lewis, author, or I'm sorry, founder of Love Is What Love Does, a Selma-based nonprofit focused on enriching the lives of disadvantaged people in Dallas, Perry, and Hale counties through such means as food distribution, youth programming, and help with utility bills. While meeting with Braxton, Lewis learned more about his case and became an investigator with her friend, Leslie Sebastian, a former advocacy attorney based in California. When the white residents learned Lewis was helping Braxton, she too began receiving threats earlier last year. She received handwritten notes in the mail with swastikas and derogatory names such as the N-word and B-word. One of the letters had a drawing of her and Braxton being lynched. Another letter said they had been watching her at the food distribution site and hoped she and Braxton died. They also made reference to her children, she said. Lewis provided photos of the letters, but Capital B will not publish them. In October, Lewis and her children found their house burned to the ground. The cause was undetermined, but she thinks it may have been connected. Lewis is then quoted saying, This seemed like the 1930s and in the, and the 1950s. I thought we were in 2022, now 2023. It was just an eye-opener. More than made me afraid, it made me angry. It was something that made me say, either you can back up, but then what would you have gained from this? Braxton does need the help, and the town does need change. So if anyone, anyone, please, if you ever hear anybody tell you that white supremacy and privilege and institutional racism racism no longer exists or never did, if anyone is in denial that Jim Crow pretty much continues to this day, just tell them to look up what is happening in Newburn, Alabama, N-E-W-B-E-R-N, Because, you know, that's not the only town experiencing what locals are going through there. Yes, apartheid is happening in the United States, whether the establishment media wants to report on it or not. Coming up, the long-continued destruction of Haiti, care of the United States, Canada, the U.N., and many others in the global north. We'll have This Week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. The United States has always had a very, very fraught relationship with Haiti ever since the small Caribbean nation first declared its independence in 1804. But it's not only that interactions with the U.S. have led to very undesirable outcomes for the people of Haiti. It's seemingly the entire West, the global North, whatever you want to call the dominant economies in the region. More recently, it's been the United Nations that has caused havoc in Haiti. But maybe, just maybe, there's an opportunity right now to make amends to Haiti, despite their current political leadership taking power in what appears to be a coup assisted by the United States. Returning to This Is Hell to help us have a better understanding of what is happening in Haiti, Jake Johnson recently posted the New York Times opinion piece, The U.S. Still Can Do What's Right for Haiti. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Jake. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Always great to have you on the show. You can find out more about the organization for which he works, the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., by going to CEPR.net. And you can follow CEPR on Twitter 
at C-E-P-R-D-C. So let's get go back a little bit, back to early May, when you wrote a piece with David Adam and Adams headlined, How Haiti's Assassination Plot Unraveled Minute by Minute and Text by Text. In that piece, you and David write, on the morning of July 7th, 2021, the alleged assassins of Jovenel Moise, Haiti's president, scrambled to escape the aftermath, pinned down just blocks from his home by Haitian police who responded to the scene. Their planned escape route was blocked. The news of the president's death had already hit the airwaves, and people had begun setting alight tires in the street. You then uh, quote a Sergeant Duberny Capador, a highly trained former Colombian soldier who wrote in a WhatsApp group chat at 4.56 that morning, we're in it, guys. We're in the middle of the war, and nobody is responding. So, Jake, let's start with this. To what extent did the assassination of Haiti's President Jovenel Moise cause civil unrest that verges on or could even be considered a war? Did that assassination lead to a civil war? Would that be misleading or a mischaracterization or, or misrepresentation in some way? Yeah, so I, mean, I think in many ways, right, the assassination itself was really the culmination of things decades in the making, right? So I, I wouldn't say that it caused the current situation, right? I think it was, um, it, you know, it was caused by this situation that already existed. And what I mean by that, right, is that this had been uh, many years of, uh, you know, misgovernance of international intervention of a total breakdown of the state and its relationship to the people of Haiti, right? And the assassination was a manifestation of that, right? And so, the violence, the insecurity, the po political paralysis that we've seen in the two years since the assassination, uh, again, not caused by the assassination itself, but caused by these underlying factors that had existed prior to the assassination as well. So why do we have this outsider's perspective of a constant breakdown of political leadership in Haiti? Can we blame this on the Haitian people? Is this due to outsiders, or is that uh, too much of a binary and too simplistic? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think, you know, nothing is ever that clean, right? I mean, it's not one action, it's not another action, right? But I think as outsiders, right, as, you know, myself working in Washington and working uh, focused on U.S. foreign policy, I mean, we have to look at the role of the international community in Haiti, right? And certainly as we look uh, to this situation, you know, I think we do have to focus on what role international actors have played. And so, you know, again, I think it's, it's easy to look at Haiti today, right, to see uh, the situation on the ground and say, oh, okay, you know, Haiti's a failed state, once again, hitting the headlines, violence, insecurity, you know, we've, we've heard it all before. And it's really easy to ignore the deeper context into what's caused that, right? And, and I think that's what's crucially important for certainly for a U.S. audience and for the rest of the international community and people all over the world to understand, right? This isn't happening in a vacuum. Uh, this is happening for specific reasons and for specific policies that are pursued and pushed by the international community in Haiti. But to understand that deeper context, will we have to understand the entire history of Haiti going back to 1804? Or can we just look at it in recent years as a change that has happened when it comes to outside relations with Haiti? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you you know, again, you can go back centuries, right? I mean, you talk about you know, the, the, the title of the New York Times piece, the U.S. can still do what's right for Haiti, and you talk about making amends. I mean, we're really talking about making amends. We go back to the ransom that it paid for its independence when it had to actually pay the threat of war 
uh, for its independence, for its freedom, right? For its population's freedom. And the billions and billions of dollars that it had to spend on that and the long-term damaging effects. So of course we can go back centuries, but I think it's also important to know that we don't have to go back centuries to see US and foreign intervention in Haiti and the deleterious impact of it, right? Um, so we go back to uh, the 2010 earthquake and the first election that took place after that. And you see that international donors, including the US, really threatened to withhold aid after the earthquake if Haiti didn't arbitrarily overturn the results of its election. Okay? That ushered President Michel Martelly uh, into office. And it has been that regime, that uh, you know, government and its uh, predecessors, uh, successors, right, that has governed Haiti with the support of the international community for more than the last decade. And that has overseen this total collapse of state institutions. Is this then a government that took power during a crisis? What can we learn about governments and what happens during a crisis from what is taking place in Haiti? After all, not only uh, are we going to be are we going to continue to be going through climate change, but we just uh, we are also still going to be going through more and more pandemics. Is there something? Is there a lesson to be learned when it comes to governance taking uh, power during a crisis? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, also a lesson just in general for the international community, right? And this is something that's not just happened in Haiti. I think it's happened in many other countries, right, where we try to impose leaders and we try to prop them up and ensure the stability of the country by uh, imposing those leaders, right? And I think the lesson we've learned from, from whether it's Haiti, Afghanistan, anywhere you look, right, is that a, a democracy can't be imposed from outside, right? Uh, this has to be a homegrown thing. And and the efforts to superimpose a, a sort of facade of democracy through, you know, soft power or in case, some cases hard power, right, is destined to fail. I mean, you can have some short-term stability, but over the long term, it, it's simply not going to work. And, you know, I mentioned this overturning election results in 2010, but again, this is something that's continuing today, right? So in the aftermath of the assassination of Haiti's president in 2021, uh, a few weeks later, the international community through a tweet and a press release, urged uh, Dr. Ariel Henry to form a government and become prime minister. Now, Henry had been nominated just two days before the president was assassinated. He had yet to be sworn in, yet to form a government, and of course was just a, a prime minister, not a president, right? This, that's the, the system, government system in Haiti. And that's where his legitimacy came from. It came from outside, right? It didn't come from within Haiti. And I think what we're seeing now in many ways is the, is the effects of that, right? Is that without domestic legitimacy, without local legitimacy, without some actual agreement among actors in Haiti to govern, to lead, uh, the state is slowly collapsing. And not that slowly. I mean, it's, it's all happening quite quickly, really, in a sort of more historical perspective. So what do you think happens within a nation when uh, when it comes to their feelings about and their relationship with democracy, when democracy is imposed upon them, when they have leaders imposed upon them in what is supposed to be a democracy but does not appear to one as appear as one? Do you think that there is a loss of faith in democracy when democracy is imposed upon people? I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think Haiti is a, is a prime example of that, right? I mean, uh, you know, this is a nation where, you know, faith in democracy, trust in democracy uh, was never extraordinarily high, right? After the 1990 election of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, which saw a tremendous turnout, it was a historic election, a really like a, a tidal wave of change over not just Haiti, but really that rippled throughout the hemisphere. 
And yet nine months later, there was a military coup, right? And ever since that first democratic election in Haiti, we've seen uh, the international community sort of imposed these guardrails on Haitian democracy, right? Tightly tried to control that process. And of course, they're not acting alone. They're acting with Haitian elites. They're acting with Haitian economic and political elites, right? To try and manage that situation. Now, it certainly hasn't been to the benefit of the Haitian people, but what you've seen steadily is declining participation rates in elections, declining faith in uh, elections in terms of you know what we've seen from polling data. And so you get a situation, you know, we, we talk about the assassinated president, Jovenel Moise. He was elected in 2017. He had less than 600,000 votes in a country of greater than 10 million people. And what sort of legitimacy, what sort of stability do you think a, a vote like that is actually going to achieve? And unfortunately, we're seeing a very similar dynamic uh, be pushed now, right, which is we just need to get to elections is what we keep hearing, elections as soon as possible. But in what conditions and under what, uh, you know, what, what environment is that going to take place, right? An election with 15% turnout, as we've seen in recent years in Haiti, uh, is likely just to generate more chaos and instability rather than, than solve any of those issues. You were mentioning earlier the way in which Haiti had to pay for its independence when it became an independent state back in 1804. Is there any way that you, they can possibly, we can possibly get past that original sin of forcing Haiti to pay for its independence. Is there any way, is is it even maybe too late to try to overcome the problems that uh, started in 1804? Is there any way to overcome that original sin? Well, look, I don't think you can erase history, right? And, and you, can't, you can't change history. But what you can do is change the policies today, right? And that can start with reparations. And there's a broad movement to support that, including from Haitian civil society organizations. And that's something that, that's been... Uh, you know, in place for a long time and has been fought tooth and nail by international powers, France chief among them, who, who uh, the, the payments were made to. But it can happen in other ways, right? And this is what I get at in, in the piece in the New York Times, right? is that the U.S. policy of picking political winners and losers, of trying to prop up unpopular leaders, of trying to sort of paper over this with this democratic facade, that's ongoing today, right? And that can change. That can change in a day. Right? It doesn't take any financial resources. It doesn't take anything. It changes uh, just a, a conscious choice of policy. Right, And so I think, again, is that going to, to change the historical relationship? Is that going to erase the, the you know, centuries of racist policy towards Haiti? Of course not. Right, But it can make a material difference today, and, and that is important. So who would pick winners and losers, though, if the United States did not? I would certainly hope it would be the people of Haiti. But after... Uh, you know, over 200 years, you would think that there would not be that much faith in democracy, that people may not want to participate in what they might see as a sham democracy. So who would pick the winners and losers if it wasn't the United, for the, if it wasn't the United States? Does Haiti have the political infrastructure, if you will, the community organizing infrastructure, whatever is needed to get people to participate? Yeah, I think a few points. I mean, one is there's amazing organizing happening all over Haiti by Haitians at the grassroots level, right? And this is taking place in, in communities in the capital, among peasants in the rural countryside, right? Or, uh, Haitians have existed basically in opposition to a state that has been, you know, opposed to their existence for centuries, right? So Haitians are more than capable of, of handling their own destiny, right? And I think what's important to understand about the United States' role is, is we are preventing that from happening currently. And we can create the space for something to happen. And, and that's not a guarantee of success, right? That doesn't mean that, that the U.S., you know, stops propping up uh, the current prime minister and all of a sudden, you know, poof, the violence disappears, political paralysis is gone and everything moves on. 
but of course that doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing to do right and and the you know we see this this current dynamic playing out it's something again i touched in this piece right there are political negotiations taking place right now in haiti civil society has been extremely organized and has been advocating for its own policies and its own you know agenda and path forward opposition political parties the prime minister etc they all recently met in, in Kingston, Jamaica, under the auspices of CARICOM, to try and sort of come together around some common platform, a Haitian-led solution. Right? But what's quite clear is that with U.S. And, and U.N. support, the prime minister, Henri, has no real incentive to actually negotiate or share any power. Right Now, in addition to that, he's also linked to a prime suspect in the assassination case. So he also knows that if he gives up any power, he's very likely to have to answer questions before the judicial system, right? So there's a lot going against this. But if that dynamic could change, right? If that US support, you know, was not as explicit, was not just designed to prop up an unpopular leader, you know, I think the idea or the hope certainly is that that creates some space and it changes the incentives in Haiti for actors to actually uh, reach an agreement and share power meaningfully. Now, again, that doesn't solve every problem, but I think in terms of US foreign policy, in terms of you know, what we on the outside and outside of Haiti can advocate for, right? It's, that is the clearest manifestation of it. So one of the ways that Haiti is far too often uh, depicted in the media, in the paper of record, for instance, it's often depicted as a country that is run by criminal gangs. What is accurate or inaccurate about that statement? How misleading is that, is that statement? And how accurate of a depiction of Haiti is that? Yeah, I think, you know, look, there's there's no doubt that over recent years, especially um, criminal actors, armed groups have taken over much of the country, are operating in, you know, majority of the capital's neighborhoods and including other departments. But I think portraying it simply as that is far too simplistic a narrative, right? So, so for one, uh, you know, we really saw this proliferation of armed groups begin in 2018 at the same time and in large opposition to a nationwide anti-corruption movement that was targeting government uh, misuse of billions of dollars in aid and sort of just the general lack of the state's ability to take care of the population. So we saw this huge nationwide uprising, this real movement for change. And in opposition to that, you saw political and economic elites funneling arms and money into you know, these groups that would block protests, that would control these neighborhoods, that would secure voting territory. So treating it in isolation to these larger sort of factors, I think, you know, is, again, too simplistic a narrative. And I think on top of that, right, you have to understand, again, the role of the international community has played in precipitating that situation, right? And so these leaders who were using armed groups for their own benefit were all at the same time receiving strong diplomatic and financial support from the United States, the United Nations, and other actors in the international community, right? So again, I think treating it again as just, you know, oh, poor Haiti can't govern itself and ignoring these other factors, you know, contributes to a perception that there isn't uh, a solution, right? That there isn't uh, any role or any positive thing that the U.S. can do. Uh, and I think that feeds right into the hands of the U.S. government, right? Which wants to say, oh, well, what do you expect us to do, right? This is Haiti. And it doesn't have to be like that, right? And there are specific things that the U.S. government can do uh, that wouldn't be further intervention, right? We're, but we're talking about stopping the ongoing intervention. 
We are speaking with Jake Johnson, who recently posted the New York Times opinion piece, The U.S. Still Can Do What's Right for Haiti. You can find his writing and more about CEPR at CEPR.net. You can follow CEPR on Twitter at CEPRDC. And you can follow Jake on Twitter at Jacob Johnson. He has a uh, book coming out in January, and the title of that book will be Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. And we're looking forward to having Jake back on to discuss that book. You write roughly three hours after Moise's death. The soldier was still unable to reach the two men who had hired him, owners of a Miami area security firm. This is the soldier who was involved in that shooting at the time. Their uh, their audacious plot to seize power didn't appear to be going uh, uh, to plan. So again, this is a soldier who was uh, supposedly linked to this plot. Uh, everything is kind of uh, somewhat uncertain at this point, but you write that this was audacious. To you, what explains these assassins overconfidence that the plan would work was this simple arrogance or was there a history of successful coups in haiti that led to the installation of a president that is more aligned with beliefs of those ordering the assassination is this again uh, outside influence leading to that overconfidence what explains that overconfidence that the coup plotters had you know i think you know again as you know there's a lot we don't know about what really happened assassination who was really involved who was calling the shots even precisely how things went down at the president's house the night he was killed right there's a lot we don't know one thing we do know and i think it's probably the most revealing thing about the assassination is that just about everybody who's been implicated has publicly claimed that they believed to have the support of the united states government right and that's not to say that it's true or that the united states did support this or that they coordinated the assassination of the president i actually i don't think that there's evidence to back that up but I think it is important that the individuals involved believed it, right? And I think that speaks to this history of U.S. involvement and also to the how politically deterministic foreign actors have become in Haiti, right? And how that has infected the entire political system. Overconfident, because if you believe that the United States was actually supporting this, well, then why wouldn't it work? Because there is plenty of history of the U.S. overthrowing governments, overturning election results, et cetera, right? And so I think that goes a long way towards describing it. And I think, you know, the other dynamic here, and, and I think, you know, it's important to get into some of the details of the assassination case, because I think it is a really important case, right? Not just because the current prime minister is implicated, not just because of, you know, FBI informants being involved, DA informants being involved, but because I think it does explain so much about this history of U.S. interventionism in Haiti. And I think if it's handled appropriately, if it's investigated properly, if it's really taken to the end of where it could go, it could really serve as a platform to reset relations with Haiti and the U.S. and to chart a different path forward in terms of that. Now, unfortunately, I don't think that's what's happening. Right. And so, you know, as you mentioned in that article, uh, you know, the point I'm trying to make there, myself and David, who's done tremendous work on this assassination, one of the few reporters who's really been covering this day in and day out. The U.S. Department of Justice has alleged that basically the two ringleaders are these owners of a South Florida security company. And what those text messages showed was that that morning of the assassination, the Colombian hitmen that were hired to uh, you know, either arrest, assassinate, whatever, that were involved in this whole operation were left totally high and dry, right? They weren't talking to these two Florida guys or taking direction from them. In fact, they were stranded and couldn't even reach them. One of the guys in Florida was visiting family in Texas and nowhere 
near the operation. And as the messages show, seemed extremely surprised and confused as to what was happening when he did learn. And yet these are the two people the U.S. has alleged are the ostensible ringleaders of the operation. I think what it really shows is that you know, it was unlikely that that is actually the dynamic at play, right? That there were clearly other actors involved uh, in Haiti or perhaps elsewhere, right? That played a significant role in what happened. And I think this has been the big concern with the investigation. In Haiti, it, it's gone basically nowhere. There've been five judges, uh, they've received threats, they've been replaced, they've had to resign. Investigators have fled the country. Uh, the current prime minister himself is tied to a major suspect. There's very little prospects we see of success there. A lot of people have put their uh, you know, hopes of, uh, on the U.S. investigation. Now, what the Miami Herald reported earlier this month is that the FBI investigation isn't even focused on the masterminds. It's just focused on uh, very narrowly on these connections to South Florida. But I think the facts show that that's not the whole story, right? And if the U.S. case is treated as the actual you know, resolution of this assassination or the, the path to solve the mystery, uh, we're going to be left sorely disappointed in the end. And that's going to have tremendous implications for, for Haiti's political future. Leaving these uh, gentlemen high and dry, it just, when I was reading your work, I could not stop thinking about how it had some similarities to what happened at the Bay of Pigs, that the United States had this plan that they may or may not have been supporting, that different agencies may or may not have been supporting. And then suddenly when the invasion or the operation actually happens, all of a sudden they're just cut loose and they are left high and dry. Why do you think that was the case? Why were, were these Colombian, uh, was this Colombian team simply the fall guys for another operation? Well, look, that's certainly what it looks like, right? I, I mean, it looks as though it was incomplete and they were left out to to take the sort of fall. And then the question becomes, of course, well, then who was ultimately calling the shots, right? Who was ultimately putting them in that position? Was it some obscure security company owners in Florida, one of whom was an active FBI informant, right? Or was it more powerful actors in Haiti who recognized the situation? It was no secret that people were plotting to overthrow the government. This was happening in the open for months, years ahead of the assassination. I, I interviewed uh, Christian Sanon, who was initially identified as a mastermind two years before the assassination. He told me explicitly that he had a plan to to take over the government, was talking to the State Department, et cetera, et cetera. So again, these things weren't secrets, right? There were plenty of people who knew that there were various plots being hatched, various schemes moving forward, and could manipulate the situation to their advantage, right? And so I think when we're talking about investigation, you know, that's where the real answers are going to lie. Um, it, it's not simply focusing on what a group that looks really just like those who took the fall. If a, a Miami area security firm was involved, as it appears that they were in a presidential assassination, has that firm been held accountable or responsibility uh, responsible for the killing of President Moyes? More, more importantly, has that firm shut down, is it legal for private security firms in the United States to get involved in overthrowing foreign governments? Yeah, I mean, certainly no, right? It's not. And then the two owners, uh, you know, have been charged and are facing up to life in prison uh, and are currently in jail awaiting trial. Now, again, you know, I, I think what lawyers for, uh, you know, at least one of those individuals said was that he was misled by his partner. His partner said that he was, you know, working with the FBI, that the FBI was aware of everything that they were doing. And so he proceeded with the 
you know, assumption that the U.S. government was supporting what they did. Now, again, I can't speak to the veracity of that, but the FBI has now acknowledged in court that, yes, in fact, this guy's partner in the security firm was an active FBI informant and that FBI agents actually met with them in April 2021, three months ahead of the assassination. And that in that meeting, uh, the security company owners, uh, this is you know how the FBI framed it, attempted to draw FBI agents into a discussion about regime change in Haiti. So, okay, you know, this is not a smoking gun of, you know, the U.S. supported this assassination, but I think it does raise pretty significant questions, right? I mean, if, if you're meeting with an FBI informant and they're talking about regime change in Haiti, and three months later, he's involved in the assassination of a president, like, you got some pretty significant questions to answer, right, at the very least. And I think for me, like, that's the big piece that, that we've yet to see, right? And we haven't seen members of Congress, we haven't seen the public, we haven't seen the media. Nobody's asking for the U.S. government to answer these questions, right? We're focusing on a trial against, you know, individuals, none of whom seem to have any real power or influence in Haiti, um, but certainly use their connections to the U.S. government to further their own interests. And in the end, it resulted in an assassination. And you write that the day before the assassination, one of the coup plotters sent a message addressed to Walter Ventimilla, an Ecuadorian-American financier who had provided the coup plotters with a $175,000 credit line, ostensibly part of an effort to invest in some development projects, including a solar energy plant, while also providing security for a presidential hopeful, the person you mentioned, Christian Sanan, a Haitian-American pastor. Initially, the plan had been to replace President Moise with a transitional government led by Sanan. The big economic opportunities to come were contingent on that. So was Sanan seen as a rubber stamp for investment projects that would benefit those who are linked to the assassination? And possibly more important, why did these investors see Moise as an obstacle to that exact same profit-seeking? Yeah, I think these are good questions, right? And, and, you know, I think what's what's really interesting, and, I, you know, again, Sanon was initially identified as the mastermind of this entire operation. And, and that narrative has changed, right? And the Department of Justice, he's actually been charged uh, with a lesser crime than the others. The Department of Justice claims that by the time of the assassination, this Miami security firm, which had been hired by Sanon and had brought these Colombian mercenaries into Haiti, ostensibly for Sanon's protection, had totally abandoned the idea of Sanon taking power that he didn't have any support in Haiti, he wasn't going to be able to do this, and so that they had moved on and come up with some new plan. And I think this is really important, right? It's like, okay, so these all these people, these Florida, Colombians, all of them were brought in by this one guy, Christian Sanon. But then they moved on from Sanon and yet continued their plan to do this, right? That's not something you can do without some significant support from somewhere, right? And again, that's what we really need to be looking at. And you mentioned how these coup plotters were told that they could find shelter maybe at the Canadian embassy, maybe the U.S., maybe the Taiwanese, maybe even the Venezuelan embassy. Would all of those countries then benefit from the end of the Moise presidency? Is that why they were, would all these countries benefit from uh, the Moise assassination? Look, I think the most likely scenario is that much of this is not true at all, right? that these people were all misleading one another. They were all lying to one another, right? There's no indication in all of the embassies and, and foreign ministries and, you know, all deny that they had any contact that morning with, with these individuals, right? Uh, and so again, it, it's, it's all 
lies and manipulation, right? Right, And so it's really hard to pierce through. Now, I, again, one of the reasons why I think, you know, it, it's unlikely that the U.S. and other foreign powers actually, you know, directed this in any way is that Moise had largely been an ally, right? Now, there were changes. And I think a lot of people, and certainly in Haiti, and a lot of the economic elite in Haiti had recognized that Moise was no longer the sort of guarantor of the status quo that he once was, right? That he was facing incredible opposition, that it was increasingly unlikely that he would be able to hold another sham election, hand power back to Martelli, to some other trusted figure, and that the system would continue. And so I think to some extent, Moise had become a threat to the system of governance that has been in Haiti for you know the last two, three decades, and that uh, the continuation of that system has been the overarching you know sort of goal of certain actors, both in Haiti and the international community. And I think that's part of the story, right? And there's no doubt that Moise had alienated many people and many powerful people that had once supported him in Haiti. And that's a part of the, the explanation that you know allows people to understand the circumstances of his assassination. But in terms of these specifics, right, there's no indication that any of these individuals in these WhatsApp chats actually had these connections that they claim they did. At one point, there's an individual that's introduced as a representative of the State Department. Hey, this guy's going to get you out of this. He's going to he's going to save you. Right. He's going to come in. U.S. military's coming. They're all going to rescue. Now, this is a, a, a guy who, you know, we've been able to collect a little bit of information. On. It's a doctor in Atlanta. Uh, who has no relationship at all that we can find with the U.S. government. And in fact, even his messages in the chat reveal that he's lying about almost everything. Uh, you know, he's repeating, you know, Internet rumors and things like that as official government policy. So, again, I think it speaks to the level of manipulation here. But I think there's a broader point in that, which, again, is that you can use the support of the U.S. You can use that perception to achieve almost anything in Haiti. And that really tells us something much more important, right? And it tells us just how significant the role of the U.S. is in Haiti and in Haiti's politics specifically. So why does Haiti seem to attract so many con artists? <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's exactly the same answer, which is that in a situation where a foreign power is as deterministic as it is, right, it, it provides uh, the space for that. And of course, I mean, there are weak institutions. There are, you know, specific aspects of Haiti's governance that allow, uh, you know, for this sort of activity to be potentially more uh, productive or more likely to succeed, right? But again, I think it is this history, right? It's this history of U.S. involvement. It's the perception of U.S., um, you know, the role of the U.S. And I think that this idea of perception is so important, right? I I mean, and I, I keep sort of saying this, whether it's true or not, that is the perception or that's what people believe, right? And I, I think that's really important to understand here. It's not about whether these people actually had U.S. support or not. It's the power of that perception, right? That is just absolutely fascinating. You also point out that legal proceedings against the uh, coup suspects have been slowly progressing in a largely empty courtroom in South Florida. And while few people appear to be paying attention, the investigation and even a flawed parallel effort taking place in Port-au-Prince presents an opportunity not just to address a long legacy of impunity and injustice in Haiti, but also to reset U.S.-Haiti relations, which have long included American political interference and interventionism. So is the establishment media in the U.S. also paying little attention to a story about a Florida-based security firm conspiring to assassinate the president of Haiti? And if so, what explains the, the seeming lack of interest in what sounds like the kind of sensational news story the press usually indulges in. Why does 
why is this it is the US ignoring this in our media just as much as everywhere else is yeah it's like sort of a constant uh, you know, it's fascinating. I, I really don't understand. I mean, you know, because I, I think this is just like the sort of sensationalist, crazy story that uh, it would grip anybody's attention just just on the merits of it, right? And even on top of that, it has significant implications. And, and yet, I don't want to say there's been no coverage, right? I mean, the New York Times, uh, you know, by op-ed, most of the links to the sources in, in that, right, is reporting from the New York Times, from CNN, uh, from Miami Herald, which has done, a, a, you know, significant coverage. David Adams, who I wrote that last piece with, who was re reporting for Univision for a long time. So there has been bits and pieces, but it certainly seems as though it hasn't really broken into the mainstream in a significant way, right? Uh, you know, I was shocked at how many people just had no idea of sort of the basics of this assassination. And I think one thing that explains that is that anybody who's been following the case has no faith in the U.S. investigation actually identifying the masterminds. In fact, we know that they're not even trying to. And so paying attention to the trial seems like, you know, maybe not quite worth it. But even still, you know, what I've been surprised at as well is not just the lack of media coverage, but the lack of interest from Congress, right? I mean, here you have an assassination of a foreign leader, and you've got an FBI informant and two DA informants locked up in Florida for their role in it, and not a single member of Congress has asked real questions about that, right? And so I think, you know, we can't just blame this all on the media. You know, this is, uh, it's a lot easier to look the other way. And if, if not everyone is looking the other way in Congress, then, you know, it would be a lot harder for the media to, to, to not be picking it up as well. In last week's New York Times opinion column that you wrote, the U.S. still can do what's right in Haiti. You point out that the Department of Justice has said that two of the conspiracy's ringleaders were residents of Florida and owners of a local security company. In a little notice court filing this year, the FBI acknowledged that one of them was an active bureau informant. It admitted that its agents met with the two suspects in April of 2021, three months before Mr. Moyes' assassination, and that they, quote, attempted to draw FBI personnel into a discussion about regime change in Haiti. Two other people in custody in Florida are former Drug Enforcement Administration informants. So I know this is a, a very big picture, and we could again go back to 1804, but why does the U.S. have so much interest? Why does the FBI, why does the Department of Justice, why do they have so much interest in Haiti, an impoverished country that some analysts claim is run by criminal gangs, no matter how misleading that statement might be? Why would the United States have interest in Haiti, a country that just seems so devastated by climate change, but also by domestic and uh, foreign relations when it comes to their country being stable, secure, and safe for their citizens? Yeah, I think this is, you know, an extremely important question, right? I think it's something that, you know, I'm asking myself all the time, and I think many people are, you know, what motivates U.S. policy in Haiti, right? And I think it changes, right? It's changed over time. Our interest in 1804, our interest in, you know, 1960s and 1970s, you know, our interests today, it, it's changed, right? I mean, there was, we supported the Duvalier dictatorship because it was in opposition to, to Castro and communism in Cuba. Haiti was right next to Cuba and that was scary for the U.S., right? So that's not a, precisely the situation today. And I, I said, so, but today, you, you know, I, I describe it in, in my book that's coming out, I describe it basically as you know, the, the U.S. policy towards Haiti is basically holding a, a lid on a pot of boiling water, right? trying to prevent anything from spilling over the side. And that could be migration, right? That could be domestic political blowback, which is often related to migration, right? And I think there's something just more fundamental here, which is just about control, right? 
but we've worked for so long with a certain segment of patients, political and economic elite, that our policy is really, at this point, so ingrained to just sort of support them, right? That that's, and that's what's motivating so much. But Haiti does have an impact on the U.S., right? I mean, it had an impact in the 2016 election in Florida, where many Haitians stayed away from the polls and didn't vote because of the Clinton's damning legacy in Haiti, right? And you can see this time and again, I mean, it happened during the last election in 2020 with increased migration from Haiti under the Obama administration. So you can see how this has domestic political implications. And, you know, I think that really is a significant factor in terms of what motivates U.S. policy. You point out that even today, as Haiti descends further into uh, crisis, Washington is attempting to put a thumb on Haiti's political scales. There was an opinion piece in the New York Times on June 1st headline, Haiti has overcome other crises. This time, we can't do it alone, by Gene W. Pape, executive director of Geskio, which uh, I believe that's how it's pronounced, which provides free health care services in Haiti, and a professor at Weill Cornell Medical College. So it sounds like an interesting organization. They're providing free health service. They're doing something good in Haiti, it would sound like. In it, uh, Pape writes, I never thought that I would plead for the world to send in soldiers to Haiti. I'm a doctor, not a politician or a military tactician. We have a tragic record of foreign intervention in Haiti. In our history as an independent nation, Western powers made us pay a high price for our freedom, resulting in systemic misery and poverty. But today, I cannot see another solution. Would such a military intervention be, as you described it, the U.S. putting a thumb on Haiti's political scales again? Yeah, look, I think, you know, I, I want to preface the thing, right? I mean, I, I have good friends in Haiti who I know are, you know, have long been opposed to military intervention and foreign intervention in their country who look at the situation today and, and express a similar opinion, right? That they just can't see any other way. And I think part of that stems from, you know, what we were describing earlier, talking about earlier in terms of the political dynamics. So long as the power in place is there, it, it seems like the only option that you have, right? Now, me personally, right? I mean, I think the chances of that leading to something successful or resolving these deep-seated issues is extraordinarily unlikely. We've seen that track record. But more so, you know, again, if you're talking about a military intervention that comes in and consolidates the political power of the current prime minister, I simply don't see how that's going to produce a, a positive effect, right? And, and so I think, you know, again, it's not an easy decision and it's not to make light or to, to, you know, ignore the gravity of the situation on the ground today, because it is, it is dire, right, on a daily basis for hundreds of thousands, millions of people, right? And that is significant. Uh, and, and yet, it, there's very little evidence that the international community has actually learned any of the lessons from the past, right? And unless there is some indication that that's the case, I don't see how that's going to to resolve the situation. And you mentioned that just in the last few weeks, Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Mr. Henry, the acting prime minister, uh, highlighting 100, the elected, I should say, highlighting $100 million in assistance provided to Haiti's national police and reiterating Washington's support for a foreign military intervention that the embattled prime minister had requested, though many in Haiti see the request primarily as a way to prolong his rule. So what does it reveal to you when the U.S. provides aid that is focused on only military and pol- uh, police assistance and not more so focused on the public health 
and uh, economic deprivations of the Haitian people. What does it say to you when it seems like the United States response in this case is always one of more policing, more military, and not necessarily more social services? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it can tell us quite a bit, right? And I think, you know, you can look at the United States and see our priorities here, and we're going to learn some of the same lessons, right? This isn't unique about Haiti. But I, I do think, you know, it, it's not about providing aid for anything. I mean, if the U.S. response to the current situation was just to provide health services or food services, uh, the way we provide our aid is also a big problem, right? We give it to U.S. companies. We undermine local markets. We undermine, you know, the reason Haiti doesn't produce the rice that it used to produce for itself is because we dumped our excess rice into Haiti, right? We give out free handouts that undermine local farmers. So there are bigger issues here with U.S. assistance, right? It's not just a choice of sector. It, it's how it's done and what's motivating it, right? And that's why I think it's important to focus on the policy itself, right? What's the underwriting policy? And so any of those things, whether it's you know, support for food, support for health, support for security, and I'm not saying none of those things are at all positive or couldn't be positive in a different scenario or handled a different way. But unless our underlying foreign policy actually changes, unless our priorities in Haiti change from keeping that pot on top of the lid to actually supporting the Haitian people's desire for a sovereign government, are they actually going to be successful, right, over the long term? And I think, you know, my argument is no. And, you know, this is a big part of the book that I have coming out, right? This is the argument there is that, you know, it's those policies. It's these systems that we've built, uh, you know, through foreign aid and things like this. Uh, really have long-term negative effects, right? And unless our ultimate goals and objections, uh, obje objectives begin to change, unless we reckon with what we're actually doing, uh, it's going to be really hard to change that dynamic. So uh, what would you say to someone who argues that the only way you can bring things like public health and improve social services, that kind of assistance to Haiti, uh, is the only way that you can do that is by first stabilizing Haiti and doing so by force. Does Haiti need to be stabilized to get, quote-unquote, stabilized, to get assistance that is not police or military-related? Yeah, I think, you know, this is, there was a, a U.N. mission in Haiti, peacekeeping mission in Haiti for about, uh, let's see, 15 years or so, right? And it was called the, the United Nations Stabilization Mission for Haiti, right? And there was some temporary stabilization, but... Uh, but obviously not over the long term. And I think the question to be asking is stability for whom, right? When we talk about stabilizing a nation, we're not talking about stabilization for your average person. It's stability for investors. It's stability for the elite. It's stability for those who are benefiting from the current status quo, right? Stability is also another way of saying a lack of change, right? And I think what you're seeing in Haiti, right, is, uh, is stability is being equated with the protection of a highly unstable status quo, right? And the only way forward that is going to actually address that is to address that system to change that system right and i think you know people it's it's not uh you know particularly optimistic to say this but that it takes time to do that to build an alternative right it takes space for haitians to organize themselves to build an alternative to build something new to build a representative democracy for themselves and the role of international actors in that is to well allow that to happen, right, rather than blocking it from happening. And I'd see, a, you know, military intervention or the current intervention, political intervention that we're seeing right now, both as efforts to block that process rather than support it. Do you think it would be fair to call Prime Minister Henry a puppet of the United States and the United Nations? And I can understand why the United States 
might want a puppet in another country, but why would the UN want a puppet in Haiti? Well, I think, you know, for starters, I think it's important to take a, a, a look at the UN in Haiti, which is that the UN in Haiti has largely been an extension of US foreign policy in Haiti for a long time, right? It hasn't been an independent actor. Uh, its missions in Haiti have largely been led by people who are just lockstep with US foreign policy. So, so I don't even see them as independent actors really in, in Haiti, or certainly haven't for many decades now. You know, is Henri a, a, a total puppet? Well, I'd say this, I mean, he, he owes his position and his continued presence in his position to international actors. And that makes standing up to those international actors extremely difficult, right? And we've seen this time and again in Haiti. Uh, so, you know, does that make him a puppet? I'll let others decide, but I think that is the important dynamic. So just a couple more questions for you. You also write that Haiti's political paralysis and spiraling violence did not begin with the assassination of the president. In many ways, it was decades in the making, which is where our conversation began today. Do you think this has been the plan all along to bring about chaos in Haiti? Is this chaos intentional? And if so, who does it benefit? Look, I think there's certainly plenty of people in Haiti and outside who look at the situation and come up with no other possible answer, right? That if this must be intentional, right? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think certainly the chaos benefits certain people, right? I think we've seen this time and again in Haiti where internet, where you know, elite actors, uh, political and economic actors, stoke violence, stoke chaos in order to generate an international response, in order to draw the U.S. and other international actors into Haiti to stabilize the system that benefits them, right? And I think that's certainly a dynamic here, right? That's not to say that the entire thing is is planned and and, and you know, sort of entirely directed. I don't think that's the case, but certainly these are all factors in what has led Haiti to today, right? And I think, you know, again, I, I want to talk about this just for, for another minute, uh, but this idea of, right, the democracy that was and the democracy that could be, right? I mean, Haiti had a, a sort of nominally democratic system beginning, again, with that 1990 election of Aristide, and I'd say sort of up to that assassination of Maurice. And it wasn't to say it was perfect. It very much wasn't, in fact. And it was clear at that point that that system, again, was inherently unstable, that it would not last, that it would blow up over its own internal contradictions. A state that is in opposition to its people cannot last, right? And so, you know, it is easy to look at Haiti today and to be extremely pessimistic and to say there is only chaos and violence and that this is bad and we have to do everything to, to sort of get it back on the tracks that it was on before, right? But I think another way of looking at it is that, again, there had to be a break from that past system. That past system had to fail in order to create something new. And this is also an opportunity for Haitians to be able to organize and to do that. And unfortunately, it's extremely difficult to do so given the larger context that's, that's happening in Haiti right now. But I think you do have to have that, that, that lens that to build something new is going to take time and it's going to take space. And so again, as an international community, what can you do to support those efforts, right? What can you do to stand in solidarity with those efforts? And it's to try and stop the ongoing intervention that could actually create that space. We have been speaking with Jake Johnson. He returned to This Is Hell this week to discuss an article or an opinion piece he recently posted at The New York Times, The U.S. Still Can't Do What's Right for Haiti. Jake is a senior research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., 
which has been supporting This Is Hell from our very beginning 27 years ago. And he's the author of the forthcoming book, Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. You can find his reading and uh, his writing and more about CPR at CEPR.net. Follow CEPR on Twitter at CEPRDC. Follow Jake on Twitter at Jacob Johnston. That's J A K O B. And Jake has appeared on the show several times in the past, including twice in 2017. Both of those interviews are currently available at thisishell.com for free. And I strongly suggest you go back because in 2017, Haiti was a very different place. One last question for you, Jake. And as you know, you may remember our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. It's a pretty simple one, actually. So how popular or unpopular is the United States in Haiti? Yeah, well, I'd answer with this, getting less popular by the day. Not big fans of the Biden administration? (laughs) Look, I mean, it's not to say that there haven't, you know, been positives or changes or things like that. But I think so long as, you know, this dynamic continues and more and more people see that, uh, you know, it's certainly not doing uh, the U.S. any favors in Haiti. Do you think that uh, U.S. position on Haiti is bipartisan? I think it has been for decades, right? I mean, this is not a policy that's unique to Democrats or Republicans. It's that continues to today. There's no real dissent uh, from either party in terms of what has been the status quo of U.S. policy in Haiti for quite some time. So if you go to the voting booth and you want to vote for what's best for the people of Haiti, there's no option in the United States. Well, look, I'd say this. There's an option that might give you a chance to to have more influence over what it is. But, you know, based on the actual policies we've seen, there's very little difference. On that happy note, Jake, it is always great to speak with you, and it's going to be less than six years. We really want to have you back on the show when your book comes out in January, uh, late January, early February, whenever it's going to be uh, published. Make sure you stay in contact with us. We'll stay in contact with you because I'm really looking forward to your new book. It's been a pleasure. Take care, Jake. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell and talking about an abyss. Granted, one created by the West, which is always refused to acknowledge Haiti's independence and sovereignty since 1804 when it became the first the free first free black uh, republic in the world the first independent state in the Caribbean and the second independent state in the western hemisphere after the United States it's also why you will not hear in-depth conversations on Haiti because the establishment media would rather we ignore the cruelty the west including the US has imposed upon the people of Haiti including the UN and act as if all of Haiti's problems are those of, and caused by the Haitian people. And Western policy toward Haiti has no impact on their lives, despite its exploitative and extractive nature, taking what wealth Haiti has and lining the pockets of wealthy outsiders with it. If you learned something from our conversation with Jake and realize yet again, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week, well, every week, and is podcast shortly after patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support. If you do become a Patreon member by becoming one, not only do you get the bonus weekly podcast with a new monologue for me in a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online, you also get a, sec- a secret code word that gives you a discount on all the This Is Hell merchandise, which, again, you can see at thisishell.com when you click on support. And we do have new merch. 
You now also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it is first announced on Patreon. And our newest feature every week, whoever's producing uh, chooses a question from hell for me submitted by our Patreon patrons. A question that I have not seen nor heard until our producer asks it on the Patreon podcast. That's all on This Is Hell on Patreon and only at patreon.com slash thisishell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding, I guess, on Twitter and Discord. Is that what we're doing today? Uh, yeah, Twitter and Discord. Okay. And um, the question from hell is, what do you need a vacation from? And the answers on Twitter are from Agent Sideways. <laughs> The phrase climate change on every new bullet bulletin. <laughs> and uh, Hawk, Hockey Pango says, white people slash myself. <laughs> I need a vacation for myself. Yeah. I think everybody needs a vacation from, my, from themselves. And that led to that movie, Total Recall. Right. <laughs> exactly. Both of them. <laughs> yes. There's two. Yeah. And the second one's even worse. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, so that's Twitter. Yep. And uh, I'm bringing up Discord uh, now. I could do a few from Facebook. Uh, we want. Okay. Um, Anything on Discord? I'm uh, slow with the Discord. I know. you got to yeah. scroll to the bottom of the question from hell tab on the side. It's Is all really it? annoying. Yeah. Uh, open Discord. <laughs> want, want to just move on to Facebook? Yeah. Let's, let's just, let's just go, to, go over to Facebook okay. then for a while. Yep. Um, we've got... Uh, SLS says, hell, this is hell. I'm thinking to maybe holiday in heck. <laughs> okay. And a absentee says capitalism. Okay. Scott P., uh, I won't say his name, but I think I know this person. <laughs> yes. Uh, anything Barbie and Oppenheimer related? <laughs> yes. I'm looking for the Barbie Oppenheimer movie where it's the two put together, where Barbie <laughs> is actually trying to come up with the weapon that will destroy the world. Yeah. Know, well, very good episode. Would that be called uh, Barbenheimer <laughs> I or think, sure. Oppen Barbie? <laughs> Oppen Arby? I don't know. <laughs> and uh, Fabio AJL says. A vacation from life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> All right, let's leave it from there. We'll leave the rest for Will tomorrow. That's a very good one to end on. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question about wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer uh, to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it on Patreon or Discord, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show. When we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, Dan, what is Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth? Jeff remembers when we tried civil civilization. De Jeff remembers when we tried civilization. That yes. was really fantastic back in the day. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On July 26th, 1184. That's 839 years ago this week. And thank you, Ronaldo, for putting that in, because I used to have to do the math in my head. A long time ago, before Ronaldo ever did Rotten History, it was always a pain in the ass. Anyway, July 26th, 1184, 839 years ago this week, the town of Enfurt, in what is now eastern Germany, was a key city 
in the so-called Holy Roman Empire. We say so-called Holy Roman Empire because, as the French philosopher Voltaire noted, the German-centered monarchy known by the name was neither Holy Roman nor an empire. It was really a complex of smaller political entities in Central Europe held together by various alliances and negotiations. But that rebranding as the Holy Roman Empire, you got to admit, it's a lot catchier than a complex of smaller political entities in Central Europe held together by various alliances and negotiations. Anyway, on a hill above Enfurt, Germany, stood the Petersburg Citadel. And on July 26, 1184, St. Peter's Church, part of a monastery inside the citadel, was the site of an important meeting convened by Germany's King Heinrich VI. The region was torn by constant power struggles between feudal lords and the Roman Catholic Church, mostly over possession and control of land. One such dispute between Archbishop Conrad of Mainz and Ludwig III, Landgrave of Thuringia, had gotten so far out of hand that King Heinrich saw a need to intervene. And if you are like me and have never heard the word Landgrave before and you want to know what it means, all you have to do is go to any search engine and look up images of Landgrave. Sure, it's Lookist, but every one of those guys, and they are always guys, white guys, every one of them looks like total dicks. King Heinrich called what was known as a Haftag, a meeting of nobles and princes, to hear the arguments and help him arrive at a decision. The various dignitaries arrived with their entourages, see, total dicks because only dicks have entourages, and they all assembled in a room inside the church. It just so happened that the room was located directly above a huge underground latrine pit, which received the daily natural expulsions of the monks who lived in the monastery. And you had me at Monastery Latrine Pit. Unfortunately, the room's creaky wooden floor was not quite up to supporting the weight of more than 100 people. At one point in the meeting, King Heinrich called Conrad and Ludwig, the two men, the two main parties to the dispute, and took them into a small adjacent alcove to the church with a stone floor to iron out some key details in the negotiation. Moments later, the wooden beams supporting the floor of the main meeting room cracked and split. The floor collapsed, dumping the wealthy noblemen and their retinues. Again, retinue is also a dog whistle for total dicks. All of them fell into the filthy pit of human waste, while pieces of the walls rained down upon them. Between 60 and 100 people were killed, some drowning in the repulsive muck, others overcome by its poisonous fumes, and still others crushed by falling chunks of wood and stone. Among the few survivors of the so-called Erfurt Latrine Disaster were Conrad, Ludwig, and King Heinrich, who had ducked into the tiny alcove and were now stranded above the stinking murk. They clung precariously to iron railings until a ladder could be found to rescue them. And just seven years later, 
King Heinrich would ascend to the office of Holy Roman Empire. Yes, King Heinrich crawled to the throne through seven years of awful smelling foulness. I can't even imagine. Or maybe I just don't want to. Seven groveling years. That's the metaphorical length of five football fields. Just shy of half a mile. Andy Dufresne, I mean King Heinrich, who crawled through a river of awful, I mean was saved from a filthy pit of human waste, had come out clean on the other side. Now that's rotten history, and this is Hell. Dan, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell. Our final guest before our two-week marathon of interviews with historian Gerald Horn, dating back to 2018, will be Ben Makuk, who posted the Intercept investigation. Russian militia has links to American neo-Nazi and anti-trans figures. Ben's reporting has taken him to the Middle East, Pakistan, Russia, and Ukraine, where he has covered the war since uh, 2016. And uh, let's see. Of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>